Have you ever had the feeling that something's not right? The explanations don't quite make sense. You feel guilty, but you don't know why. You're afraid to speak, while at the same time, uneasy about staying quiet. Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's, and today I'm so excited to be speaking with Wade Mullen in tackling the issue of abuse in the church. More specifically, we're going to be discussing Wade's highly anticipated book, Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and Freeing Yourself from Its Power. For many of you, Wade Mullen is not a new name. Wade spoke at the Restore Chicago conference I hosted last fall, and his talk on how to spot spiritual abuse was incredibly impactful. And the thing I heard so many people say after hearing Wade's talk was that they realized that they're not crazy after all. And that's because abuse so often makes the victims feel like they're the problem. Abuse is so disorienting, and a lot of that is due to the language of abuse. And this is why Wade's book and his ministry are so vitally important. There's something incredibly freeing about naming the deceptive tactics that abusers use. So I know this interview is going to be eye-opening for so many of you, and that's why I'm just really looking forward to it. But before I dive in with Wade, I want to take a minute to thank my sponsors, Judson University and Marquardt of Barrington. I so appreciate my friends at Judson University who have been tremendous supporters of the Roy's Report. And I want to let you know that due to COVID, Judson had postponed its World Leaders Forum from October to April 7th, 2021. The featured speaker for that event will be General David Petraeus, a four-star general and former director of the CIA. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Also, if you're in the market for a car, I highly recommend my friends at Marquardt of Barrington. Marquardt is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marquardt, are men of integrity, and I'm so proud to partner with them for this podcast. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. That's buyacar123.com. Well, again, joining me today is Dr. Wade Mullen. Wade is a professor and researcher at Capital Seminary and Graduate School. He's also an advocate for abuse survivors and the author of Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and Freeing Yourself from Its Power. So, Wade, welcome. So glad you could join me today. Thanks, Julie. It's good to be on the show with you. And before we get started, I just want to mention that throughout October, Wade's book is our special premium for anyone who becomes a monthly donor of $25 or more to the Roy's Report. So if you'd like to support my investigative work and this podcast and get a copy of Wade's new book, just go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S dot com slash donate. Again, that's julieroys dot com slash donate. So, Wade, I've heard you tell your story before, but I thought one thing that was interesting in your book is that you say the first time that someone named what had happened to you in your church as abuse, you kind of balked, like you thought it was a little too extreme or something. Why is that? You know, I've heard that from a lot of abuse survivors, that to actually name it is really difficult to do. And yet that's an important step, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I mean, it took a while for my wife and I to get to the point where we were using the right language and the right vocabulary to describe what we were going through and what we had experienced. But we were really helped by an older couple who heard our story. And it was the first time that we really had an opportunity to share our story in an unrushed way. And, you know, hours into it, 
with tears in her eyes and mm. anger in her voice, you know, this older woman who was in the room with us just said, this is abuse. Mm. And it took me back a bit. And I had to sit with that because I thought, well, you know, and you come up with all these reasons why your situation isn't like others that you've encountered. And I've since come to learn that uh, abuse is an appropriate term to use for many different experiences. And for us, it, it was a freeing moment once we started to use the right language to describe what we were facing. Hmm. Much of your your study has been in the area of impression management, because again, that's what we're receiving, these impressions, right? That um, <laughs> no abuser comes to us as an abuser, or we would quickly, you know, shut that person out. But it's, it's again, this behavior that gives us impressions and makes us, you know, trust these people and allow them in. And you talk about how the behavior of abusers is much like a stage play. There's front stage behaviors, and then there's backstage behaviors. And those two are really, really different. Would you explain that? Yeah, that image was first introduced by a Canadian sociologist, a late sociologist named Irving Goffman. And he wrote a book in 1959 called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And then it's a fascinating text. He argues that in each of our lives, there's a front stage and there's a backstage version. So for example, if you know somebody's coming over to your house for a visit and you don't have time to clean your house, but you want to give this impression that your house is, you know, almost always clean, even if somebody stops in, you mm -hmm. know, so you may just, you see this person coming and you all of a sudden you shout, they're, they're here and you mm -hmm. rush to, you know, push everything into, into a nearby closet. But that's a kind of an innocent form of impression management. So the person walks into your house and what they're seeing is the front stage kind of version of your home. And if they open up those closets then they're seeing the backstage version of your home. So it happens in our lives in very everyday kind of innocent ways. But what I'm most interested in, what I'm trying to help people see in the book is that it also tragically happens in abusive situations, uh, organizations that are intent on deceiving other people who are engaging in fraud have a front stage version, what they're presenting to the public. And then there's a backstage version, what they don't want the public to see. Hmm. And so they're putting on a show for an audience and the way in which they continue to accumulate power and and following and the things that they want is to keep people only seeing the front stage version so that what's happening behind the curtain is kept hidden. And that's a problem if what's behind the curtain would reveal that the organization or the person is not who they are presenting themselves to be. Well, and that's something that I saw just happen in such a, a remarkable fashion when James McDonald was caught on a hot mic, mm -hmm. how he normally speaks. And then that was published and people, you know, people were shocked. The only people that weren't shocked were those that were in his inner circle and saw this every, every day, right? right? But there was clearly a front stage and even the green room, like so many of the worship leaders would tell me, this is what went on in the green room before we went out on stage or after we went out on stage. Two totally different people that James McDonald said he was. And so often with my reporting, that's what I report. This is the backstage, right? This is what's really happening. And um, we reveal 
also what you call dark secrets. And I thought this was an interesting language for it, but you, you talk about how there's secrets and different kinds of secrets, but these dark secrets are what abusers work so hard to conceal. Can you describe what these dark secrets are? Yeah, so dark secrets are are secrets that a person or organization might want to keep because if the secret was out, then it would have the power to disrupt their show and to bring the show to an end because the audience perhaps all of a sudden sees what's behind the curtain. So they hear that audio recording Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they realize that what they've been given is not real. And so that's a disorienting effect that that's going to have on people. And so that dark secret is very powerful because if it's revealed, then it has the potential to cause such a disruption. It has the potential to shut an entire institution down because people might say, no, I, I, I can't be a part of this. And for good reason. Hmm. And you're right. We must grasp the harm that is caused, not just by abusers, but also by those who fail to stop abuse and instead protect dark secrets. And I have heard this from so many people who have been involved in abusive systems and say, you know, I can deal with the person who was who was causing the abuse. What bothers me are all the people around them that protected them. And yet we so easily get roped into protecting the dark secrets. How does that happen? How do good people, often very good people, get roped into protecting these dark secrets of a leader. Yeah, and I, and I would echo, you know, that that is such a betrayal and sometimes a worse betrayal because if you become aware of an abusive person and abusive actions and mistreatment and you take that information to other people who you think are going to be able to do something about it and then bring an end to it, So you go into that room and you make that report with some measure of hope that, okay, I'm going to act. And because of my action, perhaps this will be brought to an end. But when they respond by shunning you or not believing you or um, condemning the victim or the truth teller, then that hope is dashed because now you realize, okay, if there aren't people in leadership who are willing and able to do something about this, then what hope do we have? And so it, it is this profound betrayal that in some ways is worse than, than, than the betrayal that's brought about just by the single abusive person. So I just want to echo that. And then one of the main reasons why bystanders end up enabling the abuser, even when that abusive person is exposed, is because they've also been caught in the web of the abuser's deceit. And mm-hmm. so they perhaps have been charmed They've been given gifts. So you'll see this in um, organizations where the leader at the top has purchased gifts for other leaders and has done favors for them and has perhaps helped them succeed or helped them launch their own church. And so they've bought all this favor and it's a it's a deception. It's a way of coercing people so that when the time comes for them to kind of test whether or not they're really loyal then that abusive person has kind of uh, deposited all these favors into a bank. And that person who's received that, that feels this obligation to remain loyal to that person no matter what. And so there's this deception that I think the abusive person has been engaging in with everybody around him or her. 
And so people, bystanders, are, I think, are often deceived as well. And then also, I think they might have something that they're trying to protect. So perhaps there's been a past case that was brought to their attention and they chose mm -hmm. to cover it up. And mm -hmm. so now, as a way of making sure that that dark secret remains a secret, they need to protect this current dark secret from being revealed. Also, what you'll find is that there's this whole history of abuse and covering up for abuse. And so somebody who's in that bystander enabling role might feel threatened by new allegations because they could expose old allegations. I encounter this all the time. I know boards where it's like you, you, you bring to the board, well, the president of the organization is engaging in this wrongdoing. And then you find out, well, the board is engaging in wrongdoing and the president knows about it and he's known about it for a long time. So he's not going to do anything. Or even as you're talking about this, the, the favors. I know a guy who was on staff at a church and he said, wow, you know, in the first like six months to a year of me being there, they came and offered to pay off all of my student loans. And they just gave mm -hmm. me a check paid the whole thing yep. off. And then he said, when he started seeing wrongdoing, then it was kind of like, well, we've done so much for you. You know, we, we <laughs> and it's like time for payback. So we see this happening. And this is the whole process of something that I think is becoming much more understood within the evangelical community. And yet even just in the past year, I remember talking to uh, a college president and I brought up the, the topic of grooming. He said, oh, what? I've never heard that word before. And so, mm -hmm. and I thought in that position, you can't not know what that means. Right. You need to know what that means because this is a process by which these abusers do groom people so that they are inclined to allow the abuse. And you've already talked about some of the things, charms and favors. Um, how does flattery work with abusers grooming those vulnerable to them? For example, one type of flattery is what's called exemplification, where somebody might not simply tell you, oh, you, you know, you're working really hard. Thank you for your hard work. Appreciate all that hard work. But they take it one step further and they say something like, you are the hardest working person I've ever met. <laughs> and so that, and you're wondering, hmm, you know, that's, it seems hard to believe, you know, I've only been working here for one week, you know. <laughs> and so that's another, but that's another test too, is that often the flattery is, is given to everybody in that person's circle whether or not the person who's receiving those compliments is really known by that person. And so that's another indicator, I think, of flattery is when you're being showered by compliments from someone who really hasn't even taken the time to get to know you. Hmm. And so it mixes in all of these, these deceptions. And, and I think one of the indicators of flattery, too, and what's really behind it, is that it's a it's a pretext for greed. And Paul talks about this. He says, mm -hmm. I did not come to you with flattery as a pretext for greed. And so flattery is getting other people to like you and to view you with favor by highlighting something about them that's going to make them feel good about themselves, but you're not actually doing it to encourage them. You're doing it so that they like the encouragement and the affirmation that you're providing to them so that they might then be more inclined to do whatever it is you ask them to do. So there's something being hidden. Well, and I do think in serving professions like the church, you get people who 
are motivated by helping people and by, you know, kind of that positive feedback. And when you're caught in the web, you can't see it. It's just so, so confusing. And and you have a whole chapter on how abusers dismantle the victim's internal worlds. And I thought that was so powerful because I think this dismantling is why so many victims feel so powerless. Would you describe this whole process of dismantling the internal worlds? I, I describe this process in which an abusive person might dismantle the entire internal world of a person. And I think one thing that's important to understand is that that often happens while that person is being charmed. Mm. And so while they're being flattered, while they're receiving gifts, while the abusive person is helping them often in ways that aren't, that are just over the top, they're simultaneously debasing you. Mm. So they might charm you and at the same time, call you various names, mm. nicknames. And when you, you know, may perhaps confront that person, they might say, well, you know, you're being too sensitive. Uh, I'm only joking. You know, the reason I pick on you is because I really like you. So what's happening is the person is being charmed while they're being debased, while their inner life is being cut apart and coded and, mm-hmm. and taken down by the abusive person. Because When you enter into a relationship with someone who is abusive and sees you as an object and just wants to get something from you for their own benefit, they're seeing the life that you bring into their sphere as a threat because we all Mm. enter into a relationship with a presenting life. So there's something that we bring into that relationship, prior learning, prior culture, prior values. And Often those things are seen as a threat by the abusive person because the abusive person hasn't defined those, hasn't, doesn't have some measure mm-hmm. of control over that. And so they get to work at dismantling that world while they construct a world that is on their terms and that they define for you. And so I think that starts, that dismantling process often starts with our inner sense of self-respect. So we begin to doubt ourselves. It can Mm -hmm. even be something as simple as, you know, somebody's in a workplace environment and they are given a job that comes with a lot of responsibility and they're expected to be held accountable for the success of their work, but they're not given any resources in order to complete Mm -hmm. the job. They're not given a budget. And the boss says, you know, if you need anything, just come to me. And so every little thing needs to be approved. Even a small expense needs to be approved by the boss. And that can have a humiliating effect on the person who can't do what they would normally be able to do by themselves. And so what happens is you find yourself in a place where you're on the receiving end of a lot of charm, but over time your internal life is being dismantled, your confidence is being worn down, your sense of self-respect. And so all the things that you need to actually stand up for yourself and say, something's not right, this isn't right. The abusive person has created this environment where you're both being charmed and also being torn down. Hmm. And that wasn't a hypothetical example. That happened to you, right? I mean, you, you, yes, when yeah. you were a pastor at a church, your senior pastor didn't give you the budget you needed. 
And when you would ask for a raise, like, oh, I mean, right. I mean, he didn't give you a raise, but said, oh, just come to me. So it makes you incredibly dependent on him. Right. Right. Yes. Uh, That's just, Uh again, don't realize what's happening when it's happening. And you talk not just about dismantling the internal world, but there's also a dismantling that happens of the external world, how your relationships and your systems of support can become you know, manipulated by the abuser. How does this happen and how can we guard against it? I think, again, is something that often happens over time where the abusive person or the abusive culture begins to slowly cut you off from external supports. So it could be education, you know, not, you'll see this in cult groups, high control groups, where people aren't allowed to receive any kind of education that the high control group hasn't defined for them, or they're not allowed to read the newspaper, they're not allowed to listen to the radio. So they're cutting them off from external sources of understanding, or they might, someone might cut you off from going to get therapy, going to meet with a psychiatrist, uh, taking medicine that could be helpful to you. It's perhaps a message that's saying these people are not safe. These are not people that can help you. Um, If you go to them, then that means that you're weak. You should be ashamed of that need that you have. And so the abusive person is trying to control you by cutting you off from other people, or they might cut you off from friends or family members. Like they don't really care about you. Why do you keep hanging out with them? All you need is, is, is me. And so this is an attempt to not only dismantle your internal world to get you to the point where you can't advocate for yourself anymore, but also to dismantle your external world so that you also can't get help from others. As you're talking about that, I'm thinking of people that I've talked to, sources I've talked to who have been afraid of going on the record. And one of the reasons is they said, you know, Julie, you don't understand. All of my friends are in this church. My, my kids go to school at this church. Uh, my small group is here. My family is here. Everybody's here. And so they're af- afraid to talk. Or maybe it's a, an institution that they're a part of and the same sort of things happen. And often as a part of that, too, it's like we are the only true church or we're the only organization that really gets this. And so there's almost a superiority in your part of this. So you wouldn't want to be a part of anything else. And it's it's just hard. And, and it is very cult-like because, I mean, when I think of cults, I do think of you have no other world except for the world of that particular cult. And shockingly, this can happen in what we normally think of as good evangelical organizations or churches, can't it? Absolutely. And Irving Goffman, again, in some of his later research, talked about what he called total institutions. So these places that govern the whole of your life. Mm. And so a boarding school or a prison is a total institution because you're under one authority, whether you're sleeping, eating, playing, whatever you're doing, you're under one authority. And that authority has set all the rules for your entire life. Mm-hmm. But churches can become total institutions. And what I found is that the more abusive an organization tends to be, the more they seem to have trended in that direction. And so mm-hmm. you often find that there's cover-ups going on and there's story after story of people who have been mistreated in churches that also have, over time, 
ask their members to adhere to this long list of rules mm. or to sign membership covenants and to enter into one-sided contracts. And so it becomes this place that's easy for people to get into, but then incredibly difficult to get out of. <laughs> it's like the Hotel California. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you write, once you are charmed, dismantled, and alone, the abuser advances. A thick fog descends between the charm that deceived you and the fear and shame you suddenly feel after an abusive attack. You feel paralyzed, confused, and captive. Wow. I mean, that that is so sad, yet I have talked to so many people who just feel trapped. What do you do when you're in a condition where you feel trapped, like you've said, you're in something, maybe it is a total institution. What do you do in that situation to get free? It's, a, it's an incredibly hard place to be in mm. um, because you do feel uh, trapped. And so you don't know what to do. Uh, you feel as if every door is locked. Mm. Or if you can't open the door, there are tigers behind that door mm. ready to eat you up. You know, So you just, you don't feel safe um, you also feel confused, so you don't know what's true. And often, um, and this is no fault of the person who's in this place because it's a result of the deception of the abuser, the person who's in that place of isolation and confusion and despair might believe the messages that they've been receiving, might mm-hmm. have a sincere uh, belief in what the abusive person has told them is real and is true about even them. And so there often is a need for somebody to somehow escape and get a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes it's just simply attending a different church for a bit Mm -hmm. and realizing, wow, okay, life can be different. And perhaps what I was experiencing isn't normal and isn't right. And so I think one way perhaps is if it's possible, if it's safe, is to get a different perspective or Mm. you can get a different perspective from a trauma-informed professional, from a competent therapist who's able to disentangle all the webs of deceit and is able to help you make sense of what you've gone through and where you're at there's no blueprint. You know, there's no secret key. It's something that I think the approach to freedom has to be something that is highly contextualized. Mm-hmm. And that's where other people can really come alongside and hear your story. And then based on your unique story, help you develop perhaps a, a way even to take a small step toward freedom. Mm-hmm. And you said, um, I mean, at the beginning, you were talking about an older couple that heard your story. And they became, I mean, it, it seems so often they kind of break through the fog because they're not part of the system, right? Mm-hmm. And they can speak into it. What also, you know, we know the Holy Spirit brings truth and conviction and all these things. How did the Holy Spirit work in you to kind of bring that illumination? I think for me, I reached a point where I was very angry at the injustice that I was seeing and the mistreatment of other people, mm. not just the mistreatment of, of my family. And, and I had to decide what to do with that. And I was made to believe that this was coming from a root of bitterness. And this was <laughs> coming from a, yeah, 
a how a often poison... has it been the root of bitterness? Right. Uh, right? Yes, right. <laughs> oh my, a poison place within me. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a there, I don't think there was a night where I took all of that to God, mm. and I decided just to take an inventory of what was true of all the things that had made me angry, and I just wrote. Uh, one sentence after another, I was angry when, I was angry when, I was Mm. angry when, and realized after hours of doing that in seven to eight pages of things that had made me angry, I realized that all of these were things that had been done to other people, friends and family and people in the church that I'd loved. Mm. And all of these were legitimate reasons to be angry. And and my mind went to Nehemiah, who, when he heard the outcry of the people who had been oppressed, he became extremely angry. And and for me, I think in during that night, I think God, the Holy Spirit, comforted me and uh, affirmed this sense that I had that this isn't right, um, and I have every right to be angry, and in fact, everyone ought to be angry about this. <sighs> And I do mention this in the book that I think was a a gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And I'm careful when I talk about forgiveness, not to be prescriptive. Mm -hmm. This is simply my my story, my experience. It was at the end of doing that hard inventory work of listing all of these painful memories that at the end of it, I just wrote the words and I and I forgive you. And. I wasn't expecting to do that. I was sort of surprised by by that response. And mm-hmm. it was a moment for me, though, where I was able to take all of this um, pain that was on the paper and forgive the person who had been behind much of it, but not in a way that caused me to then put my head in the sand and say, OK, I'm going to forget this. No, mm-hmm. it, was, it actually spun me into action. Mm-hmm. Because I was, it wasn't about me. It wasn't about getting revenge. It wasn't about seeing another person condemned for the sake of condemnation. It was, okay, now I know what's true. And I'm going to do whatever I can to shine a light on this while forgiving the person. Hmm. Wow, that's good. And it allows you to release that person, you know, to the cross of Christ and you know, he took on our, our pain and our burdens and you can release that person. But I, I love what you say about about being angry. I There is righteous anger. And I remember <laughs> I've had people say this of me, too, with uh, investigations that I do. And, and frankly, the investigations I do aren't personal because I'm reporting other people's story. But when I hear their story, it impacts me. You know, it makes me angry. And and half the time, you know, when people come at me and say, you know, you sound angry, my response is, yeah, I'm angry. Why aren't you? Yeah. yeah. Why aren't you angry? And I think there is this evangelical niceness that we can never be angry. And that, that's not what scripture says. It says in your anger, do not sin. But should we be angry about the things that God gets angry about? Absolutely. And does God get angry about the vulnerable being preyed on by the powerful? My goodness, read the Old Testament, you know? I mean, that is one of the things that most moves the heart of God. And so I think absolutely there's a place for being angry, and absolutely there's a place for forgiveness. But 
as you say, it didn't move you to just excuse it and to be passive. It moved you into action and to into confrontation. And so let's talk about that. When we go to confront the abuser, and you have a whole chapter on concessions, uh, because it deals with how these abusive leaders and organizations often respond when they're confronted by their bad behavior. And I found that almost never, and this is so sad, this is what grieves me, because we do have a gospel that deals with sin and tells us how to deal with sin. And it is, you own your sin, and you confess it, and you repent of it. You know, that's that's the gospel. And yet so often what I find is that these abusers don't repent, and instead they employ a number of concessions. I'd call them almost fake apologies. Would you describe some of these concessions? And this is one of the things I love. In fact, this is how I was introduced to your work, was that you actually dismantled a statement that Harvest Bible Chapel had given in response to an expose that I had written in World Magazine about Harvest Bible Chapel and James McDonald. And it was just, it was brilliant. And it was like one of those things, like you just took these tactics and named them and so, so powerful. So uh, dis- describe some of these these tactics or concessions that leaders and organizations use. Yeah. And I use the term concession because I'm I'm trying to convey the image of an organization or an abusive individual who must finally, because the evidence is overwhelming or because the outcry is so great, must finally concede uh, the basic facts of their behavior Mm -hmm. and the harm that they've caused. But they're not doing it uh, for the benefit of truth and justice and compassion and restitution. They're doing it still for their own benefit. They realize that to not apologize, to not offer some kind of statement that acknowledges this would actually be worse for them. And so they're waving a white flag, hoping that the public perhaps or um, victims who are bringing allegations or a truth teller will back off. And so they're trying to use an apology to disarm people that they perceive as a threat. And so they concede in the end, they concede this. What often though they're not willing to do is to give up control of the narrative. They're not willing to give up control of authority and have somebody else come in and shine a light on what's true. They're not willing to give up, most importantly, control of their own image. And what they want to be seen as still is worthy, worthy of power, worthy of a following, worthy of people's donations, worthy of the the position of power that that abusive person might might hold. And so in order to accomplish that, what often they do is they'll say, I'm sorry, perhaps even that's all they'll say, mm-hmm. or just acknowledge, yes, this happened, or say, you know, we recognize that there are areas in which we've fallen short, <laughs> or there's more that we could have done, right? It's very vague. Never name, right? You're, as you said, very yes. vague, super, super vague. Yes. Don't name the sin, don't really own it, but yeah, vague apology. Right. So nobody really knows what they're apologizing for, (laughs) but they're saying the words, I'm sorry, or something like that. And then often what happens then is they quickly pivot to either promoting themselves. You know, these are the things that we've learned over the years. This is who we're becoming in the future. And what they're trying to say is that this behavior, although it happened, is not like us. So we shouldn't be linked to this. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to separate themselves by promoting their values or their, their past success or their future goals. Or they might um, attach all these excuses. Yeah, I'm sorry, but 
uh, we didn't mean for this to happen. So they're denying intent. Or they might say, we're sorry this happened, but, you know, we're just trying to, like the person you mentioned who who said that he doesn't even know, the, he ha- hadn't even heard of the word grooming and hmm. perhaps doesn't know that concept. Well, maybe somebody brings an accusation to that pastor of grooming behavior and he doesn't act on it. And then later he's called out on that and people ask him, why didn't you act on this red flag behavior that was reported to you? That pastor might say, well, just like everybody else, you know, I'm just now starting to catch up on this. You know, I didn't know anything about it. And so he's suggesting that he didn't have the ability to do anything else. He didn't have the foresight to do anything else. He didn't know what to do with what was presented to him. Therefore, he shouldn't be held accountable. It wouldn't be reasonable to to have him face any kind of consequence or anything like that. And so he might say, I'm sorry, but then quickly pivot to that kind of excuse. So there's these concessions that are then a, then followed up by promotions or defenses or justifications you know, where someone might say, yes, this happened, we're sorry, but you know the person who was harmed should have known not to have engaged in that behavior, should have known not to have been in that place. Uh, so they're they're subtly suggesting that the wrong was justified in some way. Hmm. And you write, many public statements of apology quickly become pitches for why organizations or leaders are still worthy of continued support from their followers. So true. I mean, it's just, again, using these different tactics to get us to say, oh, okay, you can still be in this position. So rarely does the person just own it and say, I need to step down. I need to work on me. I need to, <laughs> um, or I'm disqualified from being a pastor. We hardly ever hear that, even though some of the sins are disqualifying sins. And I just want to mention at my website, not only is there an article on that harvest uh, statement, which I mentioned, there's also one that you did sort of walking through convocation that Liberty University did when they were hiring mm-hmm. a disgraced coach. And that was mm-hmm. like so instructive. Um, Dr. Julia Dahl has some articles uh, there on Dr. Thomas mm-hmm. White, the president of Cedarville University, who after being caught kind of red-handed, having hired a professor who was a sexual predator, admitted sexual predator, then had all of these excuses. I mean, it's just classic. So again, all those things you can find at my website, julieroys.com. Just really, really instructive. One of the questions that I always hear asked, though, and, and it's being asked right now, you know, I mean, we have some institutions where, okay, they've admitted some things are wrong. How do we know if an organization or a leader has truly changed and whether or not we can trust this leader or organization again? I think one way is to see uh, how willing they are to pull back those curtains and Mm -hmm. to submit themselves to a truly independent investigation and to turn to outside help and to say, you know, we're not going to rely on our own judgment and our own assessment. We're going to ask you to come in and show us what is true. So I think that's that's one way. And to not limit the scope of that investigation. And so what sometimes happens is an organization does invite investigation, uh, but they still have control over that. And one of the things that they control is the scope of that investigation. So they say, you can only look in these rooms. 
So that's, I think, one indicator. And then another indicator is whether or not that organization is willing to own what has already been revealed. Are they willing to recognize the harm that they already know that they've caused? And are they willing to do the hard work of, of let's say, if it's a public wrong and there's been public deception, then are they willing to publicly own that and and to do that in a very specific way? So for example, the Willow Creek uh, case, you know, they had multiple family meetings, mm-hmm. at least two that I know of, where they were presenting their narrative and Bill Hybels was presenting his narrative mm-hmm. filled with deception, yeah. which has done great harm to people. And I think one indicator of authenticity would be if that organization held similar family meetings and took just as much time, if not more, to walk through each and every deception and to own it and to apologize. So are you willing to be that specific? Because you were willing to be that specific when you were trying to defend yourself. So if you see somebody who is basically giving up control and willing to acknowledge, even in our own interpersonal relationships, this is what I've learned when I've needed to apologize. I need to own every specific word and every specific behavior that has caused somebody else hurt. And to say, when I did this, I know that it hurt you in this way. I recognize that. Mm. And there may be other ways that I'm not even aware of. And I'm open to hearing that, but I'm going to own it and confess it. Christian organizations especially ought to be willing to do that. But I think they fear what will happen if they apologize, if they acknowledge that somebody experienced a personal injury because of their neglect or Mm. because of their actions, then perhaps they'll be sued and perhaps they'll be bankrupted. And I, you know, and I say to those organizations, it's worth it to establish truth to do what's right on behalf of people who have been harmed under your watch. It's the loving thing to do. And if it means sacrificing the future of your institution, then I think it's the right thing to do. And yet, ironically, I think a lot of these institutions and leaders would do 10 times better if they would just own it because people see through all the the fog that they're, you know, trying to obscure their wrongdoing with. But I think sometimes the consequences are are huge. I mean, I, I think of Liberty University right now with some of the things Jerry Falwell's done and these business deals. And as you said, what's the scope of the investigation? Is it just limited to Jerry Falwell right now? Or are we looking at the board? Because the board clearly was a part of these business deals and clearly okayed these business deals. And yet the board is controlling the third party investigation hasn't named the third party investigator. You know, are they going to release the results or are they going to control the release of the results like Cedarville did, where we get the the version that the board wants to give us, but we can't read what the third party actually said. And is the third party a law firm that has fiduciary responsibility to the board, for for example? And so, I mean, obviously they're going to do what the board wants. I mean, again, I, I almost feel like these third party investigations have become absolute farces. Do we want a third-party investigation? Yes. But there are so few third-party investigations that are truly independent, wouldn't you say? I mean, do you see very many of these that are actually real? No, I haven't seen many. The vast majority are set up in a way that is biased toward the offender. 
it's it's sad because also what I'm seeing is perhaps organizations hearing that people more and more want an independent investigation and more and more people are calling for that kind of thing. And so they might then offer that up as a form of demonstration. Okay, let, we're, we're going to demonstrate our good faith mm-hmm. by hiring an, an outside external group to come in and investigate, but then often you don't hear anything more about it, or you don't know who those investigators are. You don't know what the process is, what the Mm -hmm. scope is, but the organization has the benefit of being able to say, well, look, we, you know, we did what you asked, you know, we brought in outside people, you know, this is what they found, and then they're able to move on. And that's often, unfortunately, the end of it. Yeah. And it's another one of those concessions, right? (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. just like these fake apologies. It's just one more thing. Well, lastly, and this is where I want to land, because I know there's so many people who are listening who are just hurting. They're victims of abuse and they're ravaged. And I, you know, I hear so many who are just completely disenchanted with the church now, have no body. I spoke to somebody yesterday and, um, it was a supporter of mine, and I found out we had, he had gone to the same church as I did here in the Chicago area, but now they're you know in a different city. And I asked him, so where's your church home now? And he's like, well, we're homeless. And then proceeded to tell me about just a very wounding experience at their church. And, I, you know, my heart just, just grieves and breaks for people who have been wounded by the very institution that's supposed to bring healing and love and relationship with Jesus and and it's it's alienated them from the church and sometimes from Jesus himself and so i i just again grieve for them I, what kind of help can you offer this group of people that i i know they're listening right now yeah and i think first would be just an affirmation uh that the the pain is real and and normal mm-hmm. and uh you're not irrational you're not making too much of it and then to, I think, um, take small steps uh, to find sources of support or to find sources of beauty. You know, the things that tell a different story that are the opposite of what you've experienced. And so sometimes we feel this pressure to jump right back in to something big, whether it's a large community, uh, a church, for example or to do something great. But it takes time, I think, to to rebuild. And especially, you know, if you've been dismantled and uh, the abuser has brought so much ruin to your life, it it takes time. And not to feel the pressure to rush over that or through that time. Sometimes it's, I mean, for us, it's been sort of jumping right into another church, being thankful for a few friends that we were able to get together with on a regular basis mm-hmm. um, and and to experience the community just with those individuals. Or for me, you know, ever since we went through our experience, I've I've really taken up planting flowers and mm-hmm. cultivating a garden. And there's something very healing about that. It's there's beauty that isn't being taken from you and is safe from the abuse. Some people find a lot of therapy from uh, doing puzzles, or and I think behind that is you're beginning to create something good and beautiful mm. in your life. Mm-hmm. 
I've had that same advice given to me from uh, a pastor friend of mine who's also a very close friend. And he, he just said, Julie, with the, the kind of investigations you do just on a regular basis, you need a spiritual discipline of appreciating beauty and, and the beauty in, in God that he's given us. For, for me, I find it the same way, kind of in natural, um, just in the creation. It, it's so beautiful and, and it restores my soul. Wade, We could talk about this for a very, very long time, but I've so enjoyed our time together and so appreciate the book that you've written. So thank you, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you, Julie. Um, I appreciate all the work that you've been doing. I pray and hope that light continues to shine. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And just a quick reminder to everyone that throughout October, we are offering Wade's book, Something's Not Right, as a special premium for anyone who becomes a monthly donor of $25 or more to the Roy's Report. So again, if you'd like to support my investigative work, this podcast, and also get a copy of Wade's new book, just go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com slash donate. Again, julieroys dot com slash donate. And thanks so much for listening to the Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. It's been so great spending this hour with you. I encourage you, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving a review for this podcast. Again, thanks so much for joining me today. Hope you have a great day and God bless.